Good morning, everybody. Good morning to those of you who are watching live or on demand uh, later. And uh, it's great, great to see you all. Um, so uh, one of the things we say at Five Oaks uh, really every week is that understanding the Bible and your part in God's story doesn't have to be a mystery. And so I want to encourage you to get your Bible out. And uh, I said turn to the first page yesterday, but I'm going to tell you, turn to Ephesians chapter 6. All right, so in the New Testament, it's on page, I think, 1177 in our Bibles that are in the seat rack. It's way towards the right on your Bible in the New Testament. But just hold on to it there, all right, because we're going we're gonna to get there. Uh, the other text we'll have up here. Uh, so uh, a few things to kind of set up today uh, a little bit about what we're going to be looking at today. And I, I wrote them down because I didn't have this last night, and I, I, I could see kind of a little bit of haze last night, so... Uh, let, let, me, let me say this. Um, we're going to be talking today, as part of our Genesis 1 first page series, we're going to be talking about the spiritual realm. Uh, think about the earthly realm, and there is in Scripture a spiritual realm that in many ways is parallel to, a lot of parallels to the earthly realm. There's created beings in the spiritual realm, according to the Bible. And there have been rebellions in the spiritual realm, just like there's been a rebellion in the earthly realm against God. Uh, we don't know much about the spiritual realm, and it's really difficult to know a lot. It is mysterious, but we could know a lot more than what we know. Most of us could know a lot more, so we'll learn a few more things. And one of the things is that because we don't know a whole lot, we underestimate in many ways some of the powers of evil and really the power of evil that is around us all the time and even at work in our own lives. All right, so that's what we're going to be talking about today with some technical things, but really, really important things. Uh, and it's all going to lead to one thing we can do, one really important thing. There's more than one, but we're going to focus in on one thing we can really do that can make a difference and that we would do more if we had a sense of what we're up against. All right. So that's where we're going uh, for uh, the slides. I'm, I'm gonna, my introduction is going to be very different, so I'll kind of try to catch up with where I am. So we are doing a series on the first page of the Bible, Genesis 1. Actually, Genesis 1, 1 through 2, verse 3, chapter 2, verse 3. And we're continuing in that. And the first page of the Bible, the whole rest of the Bible hyperlinks back to the first page. It, like, introduces almost all the major themes of the Bible. So we're spending some time in the first page because we're actually doing a series of series. So if you think, that's a lot of time to spend in one chapter, actually think of it as we're doing a bunch of series. Right now we're in a five-week series within this series, okay? And uh, some of the series that we're going to be doing because it's introduced, and we're going to see how that theme is carried out throughout the Bible, have to do with the earth and environment, have to do with sexuality and gender, the interaction between faith and science, the sacredness of our work and of rest. Those are some of the things that we're going to be, we're going to be doing. Right now we're looking for five weeks, we started last week, at, at God, a series on God. God appears, the word for God appears 35 times. It's the primary. He's the subject of the first sentence and he's the subject of the whole first page and then he really is the subject of the whole Bible, and he is described throughout the Bible as a God who is infinitely beyond us, 
in every single way, infinitely beyond us. And uh, it's really important for us to understand who God is before we can understand who we are, because we're made in His image. When we shrink God down to something less than He is, then it's not a big deal to be made in His image, but it is a big deal to be made in His image. So we need to understand more of who God is as He has revealed Himself. So we're looking at, in this series, five different ways that God is different than us. I think last week I said that we are different than God, but I'm going to just shift a little bit here. The five different ways that God is different than us, and really when you look at Him, you go, that's really good that He is different than us. We like to make God in our image, but we really don't want God to be, ultimately, we really don't want God to be in our image. Here, here's the way. I think, um, uh, let's go to the next slide. We are embodied beings, this is the focus of today, and God is the supreme spiritual being. Now, we're going to spend three more weeks looking at, at other attributes of God. This one's just the simple, simple fact that He is a spiritual being and we are embodied. It's good that we're embodied beings. It's good that God is the supreme spiritual being. Let me pray. And uh, then we'll hear Genesis 1-1, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Father, we thank you that you are the supreme spiritual being. You are Lord of lords and King of kings. And we ask you now, as we look at who you are, as we try to understand ourselves, our world, in light of who you are and what you have created, and how you how you carry things out in our world, Father, I pray that we would understand more than we understood when we came in. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So, uh, we've been asking some of our younger Five Oakers to recite verse 1 of the Bible, of the first page. And so, let's, let's listen together. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All right. Okay, so uh, if you look at your outline, you all got one of these as you came in. I want to show you where we're going with this. We're going to talk about the unseen realm. That's the heavenly realm that I was talking about. And then we're going to talk about the real battle. That's Ephesians 6. Some of you are familiar with that passage. Most of you probably are. We're going to talk about the real battle and the real enemies that we have. We think that our enemies are just these earthly enemies sometimes, but really much more complicated than that. Then we're going to talk about the training, equipment, and tactics that we need in a real war that we're uh, a part of. All right? That's, that's where we're going. So let's start with the, with the unseen realm. Um, two or three weeks ago, I talked about the fact that uh, one of the things we talked about was that everything, sometimes you watch a movie, you read a book, uh, we just saw a movie the other night where last, we saw it on Friday night, and last night I said to Lois, I said, that was one of those things, you know, everything wasn't as it seems. That was the phrase. Everything isn't as it seems. And so this guy seems like this regular tailor, but he's not just a tailor. And um, really, really interesting movie in that way. And, and I said a lot, of the, a lot of the Bible is that way, especially the first page and the first line, five out of the seven words. We've been many of us have been reading them all of our lives. And we think we know exactly what they mean. 
And we're not like wrong, but it's a lot more complicated. It's not exactly as it seems. And so um, probably the word that is packed with a lot of surprises, the word itself is the word for God that's, that's used. So the second word of the first sentence, the first word is in the beginning in Hebrew. The second word on the first page is the word Elohim. That's, that's the word, Elohim. It's um, just kind of a little complicated thing here, just to, to let you know. It'll make sense a little bit later, just so you know what it's talking about. Elohim is plural. And there have been people that make a big deal out of it being plural, you know, because God is, we know, um, you know, in three persons, a trinity. It's not that. Elohim is the word that is used by pagan religions as well to describe one God, okay? So I'm, I'm not sure exactly how that works except this. When the plural Elohim is being used but with a singular verb in Hebrew, it determines whether it's singular or plural. Does that make sense? I don't think, I don't know if English is English. I haven't even thought, thought that through. But it's, the verb tells you in Hebrew whether this is plural or not. So when it says Elohim, which is the plural form of El or Eloah, it is talking about one, one. It's the most common word used for God in the Bible, kind of like our word God, very much like that in the Hebrew Bible. It's used 35 times on the first page. It is the term that's used 35 times on the first page. Elohim is sim similar to our word God in that it can refer to God, capital G, and it can refer to God or God's lowercase g, just like we do in English with uppercase. They don't have uppercase and lowercase, but depending on the context, sometimes it's uppercase God, lowercase God. So it's similar in that way, but it's also really different than our word God. Uh, it's, it can simply mean, in certain contexts, spiritual beings or inhabitants of the spiritual realm. All right? Uh, so on the one hand, God, Elohim of Genesis 1, is the creator of all things. But here's where the language and the worldview gap between us and the Hebrew people, ancient Hebrew people, um, gets really tricky. Uh, next slide. Um, Elohim, who is Yahweh, that's, that's a name that, that God uh, uh, tells Moses, this is my name, okay? So Elohim, his name is Yahweh. He created other Elohim. That's where it gets a little complicated. We don't have a word like this exactly because we wouldn't say God, capital G, created little gods. We just wouldn't say that with the same word. It would just kind of be really weird when we believe only in one God. Other spiritual beings that inhabit the spiritual realm. So he created other Elohim, which are spiritual beings that inhabit the spiritual realm. So let me illustrate how um, it gets complicated when we try to communicate this from Hebrew to English. And this is a complication that we all have and that even a lot of scholars have had and really a lot have missed, especially in the last couple hundred years because we've flattened the spiritual realm as our, our world has gotten more and more secularized. Even we, 
every single one of us gets secularized and we think more and more like this is all there is and we think of the spiritual world, that's kind of like really, we don't really, eh, not, not, not really know a whole lot about it. And then we make it easier to think about the spiritual realm by flattening in and saying, yeah, there's God and yeah, there's, there's demons. I mean, we know that from Jesus and there's a devil and, and, and that's it. And we, we kind of we stop. Oh, we throw in angels every once in a while. But this is, this is the world of the Bible. So the ancient Hebrew people might say this, Elohim alone is Elohim and he is above all other Elohim. See how complicated that sounds? Now in English, we would say Elohim God alone is Elohim God and he is above all other Elohim gods, which would suggest there are other gods. Well, we, we don't believe that, so what do we go? We go, well, God alone is God. This is how we understand that. And he is above all other gods, and they don't even exist. That's how we think of it, all right? He's above all other Elohim, and they don't exist because there's only one God, because that's how our language works. But this is how an ancient Hebrew person thinks when they say this. God, Elohim, alone is God. The Elohim, doesn't always have the, but it, the Elohim, the supreme being, and he is above all other, not gods, spiritual beings. That's how they hear it. Spiritual beings. He is above all other spiritual beings. It's just in, in Hebrew, it uses the same word. And in English, we don't have something like that. All right, so we're going to watch a Bible Project video, and then we're going to come back to this really quick, just to make sure, not to make sure, to, to at least maybe uh, explain it maybe a second time a little bit better. Let's, let's watch the video. When most people think about the story of the Bible, they think of a story about God and humans. But remember, we learned that there's a whole other cast of characters that appears throughout the Bible and plays a really important role. Right, spiritual beings, angels, demons, and the like. Right, and in the Bible, they inhabit the heavenly realm, which is parallel to our earthly reality and actually overlaps with it. Now, all of these spiritual beings have their own unique characteristics. But here's what's fascinating. The biblical authors have one word that can refer to all the inhabitants of the spiritual realm. In Old Testament Hebrew, the word is Elohim, and in New Testament Greek, it's Theos. But here's the thing. This word gets translated in lots of different ways depending on which being is referred to. Angels, gods with a lowercase g, or even God with a capital G. Wait, so one word can refer to any of these beings? Yeah. It's because Elohim is a category title. It can designate any spiritual being that belongs to the heavenly realm. Okay, a title, not a name. Like the word mom. Yeah, right. The word mom can refer to lots of really different kinds of people, but they all share in common the same role in a family. And then let's say a group of brothers and sisters are talking and one says, hey, it's mom's birthday. They're using the title like it's a name. But it would be clear that they're referring not to any mom, but their mom. Yes, and the same goes for the biblical authors. They called their God Yahweh, which is the name revealed to Moses, but they also sometimes refer to him with the category title Elohim, using it like a name, because they all know who they're referring to. Okay, but don't the biblical authors think that Yahweh is in a class of his own, not like any other? They do, which is why they say things like, Yahweh is the Elohim of Elohim, that is, the chief Elohim among all the others. Or they'll say, there's no Elohim beside Yahweh, meaning no other spiritual being compares to him because only he is the ruler and creator of all things. Okay, I'm following, 
but I thought the Bible taught monotheism, which means there's just one God. Well, the biblical authors are claiming that among all of the spiritual beings out there, only one is the source and creator of all things, including the Elohim. That's biblical monotheism, that one Elohim, Yahweh, is above all other Elohim, that is, the other spiritual beings. Now, with all that said, we are ready to learn more about who these other Elohim are and how they fit into the biblical story. All right, so uh, in the resource section at the very end of your outline, uh, I point to, there's a video that goes before this, and then they reference more videos that are coming. So if you ever want to take a deep dive into this, you can do that. And if you really want to take a deep dive, listen to the 22 hours that they discuss this on their podcast. It's in there. Uh, as well. It's amazing. Amazing discussion and mind-bending. Uh, and we're just going to kind of scratch the surface today. All right. So with all that in mind, let's go back to that screen that we had a few minutes ago. And uh, hopefully it's not overkill, but Elohim alone is Elohim and he is above all other, all other Elohim. We think that must mean God alone is God and he is above all other gods who don't even exist. But Hebrew people are not thinking in terms of God and little gods. They're thinking of God and spiritual beings. They know from the context. That's how their language works. And it's hard to understand. If you, don't, if you know more than one language, you know how this works. It's not, it's not, you can't just word for word. It just doesn't work that way. Languages are different. They develop differently. And Hebrew, they knew from the context what it was that was being talked about. All right, so I'm gonna explain a little other way, a little bit of a different way, but it'll also give you some insight into something from the New Testament where it has this distinction, and when you read it, you're like, what in the world is it talking about here? So, in 1 Corinthians, uh, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. So 1 Corinthians in the New Testament, it's an epistle, it's a letter, meant to be read out loud to the congregation. And when he's writing them, he's doing two things. He is uh, correcting them on things he's heard from people traveling that are happening there, some bad things. It's a church that he founded, but he's no longer with them. He's starting other churches. And they have sent him a letter, and he's answering their letter. And in this section like, um, that we're going to be looking at, he's answering some questions. He even quotes, quotes their letter. Uh, you pick that up from, from context uh, that he's quoting their letter. So he's explained to them, there are some in there that have said, hey, it's okay, right, if we go down to the pagan temple, participate in a sacrifice to the gods, and then eat the food that's left over, right? You say, what? Why would they think that's okay? Well, the only reason they would think it's okay is because if you belong to a guild of, let's say, woodworkers, or if the, um, you know, somebody in your neighborhood wanted to throw a big event, those would be held, the banquet halls were the temples. And they were religious enough that whenever you would get together, part of what would happen is a priest would come and would consecrate all the animals, sacrifice the animals, burn part of it, and cook the rest of it. And then you'd eat this meal. So that's why they're asking, it's okay if we go, and do this, and you know, this kind of thing. We know that it's nothing, right? We know that it's nothing. Okay, so that's, that's the, con the, the, the context. Paul says some things that for us, with our English language way of thinking, just doesn't, doesn't quite compute because 
Paul, even though he's writing in Greek, he thinks in Hebrew. I, I didn't come up with that. Some, some scholar has said that, that the New Testament writers, they're all Jewish. They think in Hebrew, in Hebrew categories, Hebrew terms. Their, their worldview is, is permeated with the Old Testament. And if you just, it's like every other line. There's allusions to the Old Testament. There's quotes of the Old Testament. I mean, the whole New Testament is totally immersed in the first testament in the Hebrew Bible. Okay, so Paul is thinking like a Hebrew while he's trying to explain in Greek kind of a, a concept that even for them might be hard to understand. So in chapter 8, he says this. This is where he kind of quotes them. He says, therefore, as to eating the food offered to idols, you know that an idol has no real existence, he's quoting them, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, we read that and we say, yeah, there are many gods and many lords, meaning in our minds, right? Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So I don't, if you were to talk to an Old Testament person or the Apostle Paul, and you can see this in Corinth, you can see this reflected, you know, and they had an idol in their hand, they probably wouldn't touch it, but if they had an idol in their hand, they'd go, this is not a god. It's a piece of wood. <laughs> and there are in the prophets a couple of times where they make fun of the whole thing. They go, isn't it amazing? Man goes out, cuts down a tree, takes a piece of wood, shapes it into something, and puts it on this mantle and says, that is my God. <laughs> he made it with his own hands, the prophets say. Okay, so the idol is nothing. It's just a piece of wood. But Paul, in the Old Testament uh, viewpoint, the whole Old Testament teaching is there are gods. Elohim, let's use the word Elohim. There are spiritual beings behind that idol. So on the one hand, you can make fun of it and say it's nothing. On the other hand, you got to say, but there is something going on behind the scenes. And you see this uh, in the Apostle Paul in chapter 10. We're still kind of talking about this topic, and he says, what do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? Because they're saying, it's nothing, right? So we can go ahead. No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. And I don't do not want you to be participants with demons. If you eat that food, he says, what you're participating in is a ritual, a liturgy that is to something that is real. It's a spiritual being. And if he were writing in Hebrew, he'd say Elohim, but he grabs the best word that he can and he says demons. All right, we think of demons as these little creatures and stuff like that. It's a spiritual being that we'll talk about where, where they come from in just a few moments. All right, so where does Paul get this idea? Well, let's, it's all throughout the Old Testament, but let's look at one of the, the clearest passages. It's from Deuteronomy. It's way back in the first five books of the Bible, the, the books of the law. And it says, they sacrificed to demons who were not... God, that's using one of the singular forms, Eloah, to gods, referring to demons, 
uses the word Elohim, whom they have not known. Okay, they were sacrificing to someone other than God, and so they weren't sacrificing to God, Eloah, they were sacrificing to God. So this is a different word, it's, you know, good translation, but it's, it's a different word, of course, than demons in the New Testament, maybe talking about the same thing, but basically this clarifies it. This is a parallel phrase, to gods, Elohim, demons, gods, doesn't use the, I don't know why I put that in there, it's a little confusing, but it's talking about a category title, all right, when it talks about Elohim, a category title. Demons are Elohim, they're spiritual beings, and frustratingly for us, it's the same exact word <laughs> used for God in the Old Testament. Um, but when it's used that way, they know it. They know it's being used as a category title, like moms. They're not talking about mom. The difference is, in this case, mom is a supreme being that's totally different than the other spiritual beings, okay? These other spiritual beings, they cannot be all places at once. They don't have all power, all those kinds of things. Okay, so the video refers to two realms. There's a spiritual, unseen, heavenly realm, and an earthly realm. You saw it kind of coming together there. And uh, this particular video doesn't go into it, but the Bible tells us that God created beings to inhabit uh, each realm, the heavenly and the earthly. And at one point, there was a rebellion in the heavenly realms. We don't know when it was, and there may be more than one. If you read the Old Testament, it seems like there may be more than one rebellion. So some of the spiritual beings were cast, were cast out. And so we have a way of talking about fallen angels and Satan or the devil. We talk about um, we talk about angels also, the good guys and different kinds of angels, but the Old Testament speaks about more spiritual beings than simply angelic or demonic beings. And in the videos, these are some of the, some of the things that are used to talk, to talk about that, to, to represent those. We lump them all together, or they're all lumped together. They're all Elohim. They're all a category of spiritual beings. Um, again, we don't have an English word for that. And you can look more into that. But here's where we start getting into the so what, all right, the so what of this. So if the Bible is to be believed, there is a spiritual battle and there are spiritual forces of evil arrayed against humanity and against God in this world. Because of this heavenly rebellion, it has influence on what's happening in the earthly realm. Now, if you are a skeptic, you're not a follower of Jesus, um, or you're an inquirer, a seeker, you're, you're really trying to figure out whether Christianity is for you or not, and you're here because you're doing that, or you're here because somebody dragged you here, you know, some family member dragged you here, this is not the place to start, <laughs> all right? <laughs> this is a big, gigantic jump, <laughs> all right? Uh, and I put in the resources a better place to start. Really start with Jesus. That's a better place to start. See if you can trust Jesus. See if what he's speaking about, just really spend some time in Jesus. And then consider the resurrection and the reasons for believing in the resurrection. And, and I've got some resources for that 
uh, in, the, um, in the outline. But if you're a follower of Jesus, and you have been for a long time, let's say, and you look at this and say, I just can't buy into that, that the spiritual realm and all this kind of stuff, then I just, I just think it's all just kind of talking about psychology and you know, stuff like that. I want to challenge you a little bit. I want to challenge you to go back to Jesus and uh, ask yourself, is he just pulling psychological tricks or is there a real battle going on between Jesus and spiritual forces? Does Jesus see the spiritual forces as being personal and real? And then go to where he starts talking about he's going to rise and then go to where he rises bodily from the dead and he goes to the right hand of God in the heavenly realms. If you can't believe in demons and the devil and spiritual realm, that's not any weirder than rising from the dead and going up to being at the right hand of God. All right. From an from a earthly perspective, it's all weird, especially from our cultural moment. It's all weird. But don't just like draw this line, I can, take, I can do this. This stuff, it must be something else. If you do this stuff, remember we talked about slippery slopes. If you do this much, it's just something else. It might start happening to everything it says about God, the Holy Spirit, even Jesus himself. Okay. And we're all on slippery slopes. That's what I said a few weeks ago. So we all have to be, be careful about that. All right. If you believe in the resurrection and all that implies, it is basically silly not to believe in evil spiritual beings hell-bent on deceiving you and deceiving humanity. So with all that background on the Elohim, maybe we can hear Paul's warning in Ephesians 6 with fresh ears, eyes, hearts, because he gives a very real warning there. And uh, so look at Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. It's coming to the end of his letter. And he says this, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Uh, In our kind of way of thinking, maybe we would just stop right there. That would be enough. But he doesn't stop there. He says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. All right, so uh, if I could have the next slide. Kind of bookcases, this. We're talking about not flesh and blood. The real enemy, he says. Our real struggle is with not flesh and blood, Meaning, that person over there, that ruler, that law that the Romans have, that emperor that's throwing people into the lion's den, you know, or into the, into the arena, lion's arena. And on the other side, he says, this is, this is, our struggle is with something in the heavenly places, or the heavenly realm. And then, here we go with what he says, rulers authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil. That's what we're up against, he says. And 
those are all ways of describing fallen, evil Elohim. That's his way with his Hebrew thinking of saying this. He wants them to get it. He doesn't have a word. He doesn't want to say little gods, which is the way the Hebrew would, because they don't have that way of distinguishing. He's, he's, just, he's just saying there's, there's real powers out there. Greek language doesn't have a word like that, just like the English language doesn't have that. And so, but if you understand that Elohim, God, Yahweh, created other Elohim, meaning spiritual beings, and some of those Elohim rebelled and are hell-bent on deceiving humanity, Paul's description is pretty strong. should be pretty easy to understand, not way out there. All right, so let's do a quick review of that worldview, okay? So about five things or so, five or six things. Uh, one of the words for God is Elohim. The word Elohim can be used as a name. All right, next. The word Elohim is also a category title that can refer to every kind of spiritual being in the heavenly realm. And the way you tell the difference is by context. God created Elohim to inhabit the spiritual realm and humans to inhabit the earthly realm. And the parallels are really interesting as you read the Bible with this in mind. It's like, oh, wow, he delegates to them like he delegates to us. There's all kinds of things like that. Some of the Elohim rebelled possibly more than once. And then lastly, all humans rebelled. And are, some of the Elohim rebelled, but all humans rebelled and are susceptible to the cunning, destructive nature um, of the heavenly rebels. Well, I guess I have one more slide. When humans worship, this is one that's hard for us to get our heads around. When humans worship other Elohim, not the one Elohim, they are worshiping rebel Elohims. This has all kinds of implications for the whole idea that that other people are worshiping God, but under a different name. Other people in other places in the world and everything like that. It's like, eh, it's not, that's not how the Bible portrays it. Think about this. There's never a moment in the Old Testament where the Israelites look at other peoples who are worshiping Baal or other gods and say, oh, that's good. We call them Yahweh. You just call them Baal. <laughs> not once. Not once. In the New Testament, you've got a world that has multiple gods, the Greek gods, the Roman gods, all arrayed, all right? Not once does Jesus, not once do the apostles go, oh yeah, you say Zeus, we say Yahweh. You say Zeus, we say Yahweh. Never happens. Never happens. Instead, it's this perspective. They're worshiping rebel spiritual beings, and they're powerless. They're not omnipotent. They're not omnipresent. They're not good uh, they're not holy, they're not just, they're not God, okay? They're not God, they're not Yahweh. Okay, so Paul outlines how we can take on this heavenly realm, this evil heavenly realm. He tells us how we can do it. And to think about this, I want you to think for a moment about the war in Ukraine right now. I've been seeing some articles lately, uh, heard an interview 
where I, I can't evaluate what I'm about to say, but I'm just going to say this is what some people are saying. They're saying people are surprised that the Ukrainians are doing so well right now. Doesn't mean they're going to win, but you know, they're doing so well. They're surprised. They shouldn't have been surprised because the Ukrainians are Western trained and they have Western equipment and they're using Western tactics. The Russians, huge, you know, they still might win because they are so big and they can just keep throwing things at them and throwing and just kind of, you know, but they're not Western trained. They are antiquated. Their tactics are not good. They're, they just, they don't, they don't train like we train. And it's pretty obvious with the, I mean, when you go there and you go, okay, they're drafting 60-year-olds to fight. It's, the people who are doing that have no idea what modern warfare entails. And, uh, and so it's just, it's just not going to, that's, that's not going to work. So I remember when Russia attacked Ukraine and I thought, oh, they're going to do shock and awe. They can't do shock and awe like we did with Afghanistan. They just don't have the capabilities of doing shock and awe. And I just, I didn't know that. So I, I, I don't know, you know, that that's, that's what people, that's what people are saying. Again, it's not a reason to get over, you know, overconfident that Ukraine is going to win this war, but it does bring a little bit of a different perspective on that war. So that serves as a really good analogy for what Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 6, because there's like these that vast array of cosmic powers that are fighting us, okay? And, um, and that's what he's talking about. So it's like they are the big, big Russian army, all right? And we're the little Ukraine, okay? And Ukraine, by their own admission, I mean, almost every day, can't win this war by themselves. They're like, we need your weapons. We need your money, the West. We, we need help. We cannot win this by ourselves. And so the analogy is Paul is saying, you can't win against the cosmic powers by yourself. You just can't do it. Um, you don't have to live in fear of them, but you can't. You, you better recognize how strong they are. And that's why he just piles on, you know, what, what they are. Um, we can't win on our own. So Paul doesn't pull back from saying we have a formidable enemy, doesn't downplay their power. Uh, he doesn't say, look, you're in a spiritual battle, but the enemy is weak and God is strong, so don't worry, God has this. That's how you and I talk. That's not how Paul talks on this, not at all. So look again. We'll look at verse 10 and then we're going to continue as he talks about this, with all this in view. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, says it again, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then. Now he starts describing the armor of God, which is God's armor described in Isaiah and in other places. All right. So do, do this. Stand firm then 
with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place. Of course, these are all analogies to the truth behind that, which is truth, righteousness, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me. All right? That's how we win the Bible. All right, there may not be room in your outline for this, and I don't have anything, but here it is. There's four aspects of this. You can look at it. Put on the God's armor, truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, God's word. Really important. We've put a big emphasis in what we always do, but in this series, we talked about the importance of God's word, having a plan for your reading. Don't just, you know, read other people's, what they're saying. Read the Bible. Read the Bible. It's really important. It, it, you know, meditate on it. Let it seep into your thinking and into your mind, okay? So we have the full armor of God and all those other things that are there. We wrestle. We stand firm. We pray. We're not passive in this. It's not Paul and say, hey, God's got this. God does have it, but we cooperate with him. We have to take up his armor. We are going to be in a fight we stand firm. We have to get, you know, we, we've got to stand firm and we pray. There's effort involved. It doesn't, there's nothing in here about, oh, it's, this is a spiritual enemy, but listen, you're made in the image of God. Use your human ingenuity. Use your human strength. Use human tactics. Well, that is going to come into it, but that's not what's going to win. What's going to win? It's a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual battle. I said one thing you can take with you this week, one thing that you can, you can do this week, and that one thing is the last one on that list, pray. And I mean pray. <laughs> I mean, when, I think when we, if, if you heard what I'm saying and you're not in the skeptic camp or you're not anymore in the camp that says, ah, I don't know about all that, but you go, wow, that's what we're up against? and I can't win this on my own, you're going to pray, pray. <laughs> right? I mean, a lot of times I don't pray, pray because I forget this. It just doesn't, it's not, in, it's not on my radar most of the time. This week, get it on your radar and pray, really pray. Why don't we pray? whole vast array of reasons why we don't pray. But I think one of them is that we have a diminished view of the powers we're up against. We have a diminished view. Paul does not diminish their strength. And so, uh, prayerlessness often stems from that diminished view. Say, yeah, we, we know we need God, but we think, really, we can do this pretty much in our own power. So, pray. I want to be very specific. Pray the Lord's Prayer this week. Pray the Lord's Prayer this week. Uh, pray the Psalms. Uh, they are better than your prayers. 
say, but I want to pray from my heart. I want to pray with somebody else's words. They are better words. You don't have to pray them by rote. You don't have to pray without thinking. Pray them with your heart. They're better. Why do I say they're better? Now, our own prayers are really important. You, you do want to pray from your heart, and you do want to use your own words. No, own your own prayers, yes. But pray these other prayers because they, they do something your own prayers rarely do. They lift your eyes away from yourself. We're going to be praying the Lord's Prayer in just a few moments. We do that once a month when we do prayers to the people. Be listening for it. <laughs> it's not just focused on this realm, Okay. And so these prayers lift our eyes to the heavenly realm, the real battles that are going on. And they take our eyes off of ourselves to what's going on in our world and the needs in our world. Uh, and so that's, that's why I'm saying they're better prayers. You know, when Jesus said, when you pray, say, <laughs> he meant it, when you pray, say this. Luke 11. And, and so you have prayers that will, you know, just take our, we, we have that. We have the whole prayer book, 150 Psalms that are a prayer book to take our eyes off of ourselves and off of our focus on this realm. That's the one takeaway. So we've been asking, what are some of the ways that God is different than us? And why is that good? Well, um, let's put up the last screen here. If God was like us, He'd be unable to defeat the spiritual rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers over this present age, this present darkness, this present world, and the spiritual forces of evil from the unseen realm. Thank God he is not embodied, limited like us. Let's uh, prepare ourselves as we begin our response The emphasis, no doubt, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, the emphasis is on the atoning work of Christ. That's where the emphasis lies in the text. You just see what is it about the atoning work of Christ. He's dying in our place when he says, this is for you. What he's saying is, I'm the substitute. I'm the sacrifice. All this sacrifices throughout, you know, I mean, it just takes on that much more meaning when you realize it's the Passover supper where a lamb was sacrificed in the temple for the, to protect the people um, because they would have died at the Passover, the original Passover. They would have died like everyone else because of their sin. So Christ is the Passover. So that's, that's where the emphasis is. But there's an Easter egg, a hyperlink in here that when you know the rest of the story, you go, there's a lot in just a couple of words here. So listen for it, all right? This is how the Apostle Paul talked about the Lord's Supper. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And then Paul said, whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And if you know the rest of the story, 
there is a defeat of those evil forces that is still coming, a final defeat of those evil forces. Every time we have communion, we remember that that day, that day is coming, and that now we're in a battle. We're in a battle. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that gives us insight into you, into ourselves, into our world, and even into the heavenly realms. Father, I pray that we would live always aware of that and that we would really center our lives on your word, on your truth, on your righteousness, on the message that you've given us of shalom, of peace that we can experience again. A life based on trusting you uh, every day so that we might defeat the powers, the cosmic powers of evil that are arrayed against us. Help us to spend time with you and to lift up our eyes to you and to what you're doing every single day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.